This podcast is brought to you by the InterAstra Institute, the global public square for the business of space. Join us at interastra.space. In my own research, I, I had the benefit of being at a place like Caltech, which is kind of magical because you can work on anything that you're curious about. And I've just always been curious about, you know, what is it about these jellyfish that makes them, them so efficient? Along the way, we've had some serendipitous connections with things like cardiac health, heart health based on blood flow. But I hadn't had sort of an intentional vision for how the work that we do in my lab could affect something that my parents are caring about, like the climate crisis, et cetera. And so I sort of intentionally tried to think about a way in which my skill set could be useful. Now, as we we explored earlier, I suck at chemistry. So, you know. <laughs> I rules out that whole field. <laughs> right, exactly. You know, new batteries or new solar panels, I probably wouldn't be able to do a lot in. Wind energy is a space in which fluid dynamics is, is really important. It's everything, yeah. I am the only person to have walked in space and gone to the deepest point in the ocean. Hi. I'm Kathy Sullivan, and I'm an explorer. Exploring doesn't always have to involve going to some remote or exotic place. It simply requires your commitment to put curiosity into action. So join me on this podcast journey as I reflect on lessons learned from life so far and from my brilliant and ever inquisitive guests. We'll explore together in this very moment from right where you are. Spaceship not required. Welcome to Kathy Sullivan Explores. Before we take off, I have a gift for you. I believe that no matter where you are today, an active thirst for knowledge will help unlock your ability to live a life of meaning and happiness. So I'm sharing some lessons I've learned on my road less traveled. Over at kathysullivanexplores.com, you'll find my seven astronaut tips to improving your life on Earth. When you sign up, I'll send them to you and also make sure you're the first to discover future podcast episodes and learn more about exciting adventures ahead. Just head on over to kathysullivanexplorers.com. Have you ever wondered what jellyfish have to do with the blood flow in your heart? Or what schooling fish can teach us about the optimal design of a wind farm? I sure hadn't, until I met Caltech professor Dr. John DeBerry, a.k.a. Dr. Jellyfish. John is a brilliant and creative engineer, Yes, those words really do belong together. As a bioengineer, he believes that nature can reveal engineering solutions to us that would otherwise be dismissed because they violate our classic engineering orthodoxy and defy our expectations. Putting it another way, bioengineers look at critters as mechanisms and devices and study them to understand how they work. A summer internship introduced him to the world of jellyfish, the project he first thought was an annoying detour from his intended career path, almost a bait and switch, quickly morphed into the central focus of his life's work and eventually earned him a MacArthur Genius Award. And it also led to useful insights about how blood flows through the heart. What about fish schools and wind farms? He'll share that fascinating tale too, and some fun stories from his stint as a tech consultant on UFO film. Little known fact about Dr. Jellyfish, the man can't swim. Ready to dive in? 
So, John DeBerry, you and I have worked together for something like a year and a half on a report for the President's Council of Advisors on Science and Technology, and we've talked at tremendous length about wildfires, which was the topic of our work. But most of this was in the Zoom and pandemic era. We've, like, never had a chance to go out and have a beer together and get to know each other. So I'm delighted to start that by this process. Uh Thanks for agreeing to be on the podcast. Yeah, great to be here, and hopefully we can still get that beer. Oh, well, yes, I'll look forward to that. (laughs) (laughs) So you have a really fascinating background, immigrant parents, and a tremendously rich education in in, first in engineering and then in bioengineering. And boy, there are hundreds of things I want to ask you about. You're the only person I know who's really getting at aerodynamics by studying jellyfish, which we'll come back to in a bit. (laughs) Tell me a bit about your family. Where were you born? Where were you raised? Yeah, my parents, as you said, they were immigrants from Nigeria. My parents, they wanted us to have the opportunity to have a better education, a better life. And so my dad had the chance to come to the States and they wanted us to have the all-American experience. So they picked Toledo, Ohio, of all places. as OH. The landing spice, <laughs> exactly. So I'm a big Ohio State Buckeye fan because of that. But growing up in Toledo, it was a really great experience for me getting the, you know, we were a small family myself brother and sister. And it was in that process of seeing my parents in science. And my dad worked for a variety of auto companies. My mom started a small computer software company. That was kind of where I got my love for science and technology at a pretty early age. Tell me more about their backgrounds. Time frame, did they come to the States? And- yeah, so they came in, like my dad first came over, I think in the early 70s to go to school here. In, in Michigan, then went back and uh, married my mom. And then they, they both came back to the States around 1975 ish, mid 70s. Huh. So then my older brother was born here and I was born here as well. And then in the mid 80s, my, my younger sister was also born here. Yeah. They both had scientific or engineering backgrounds educationally? Yeah. Educationally, my mom was in computer science, so which was computer engineering you know, a nascent field at that point. And my dad was in more mechanical automotive engineering for his training. And of course, being there in Toledo, Ohio, which is the you know auto capital of the world, it was the perfect place for him to start his career. Yeah, that's very cool. So were you a Mr. Gadget kind of kid, always taking things apart and figuring out how they worked? Yeah, well, taking them apart, not always successful, putting them back together. Well, yes. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> But yeah, I, I always had that sort of curiosity. And I think that, that came from my dad, you know, growing up, there was a time when, again, he and I together with my brother tried to back together a car, the head gasket had blown in, the, in this old Mazda. And so those types of experiences, trying to understand how these different mechanical systems worked were a lot of fun, often frustrating, but because for example, we never got that car running again. <laughs> <laughs> but But I think that was maybe an early training for me in the process of, you know, trying things and not getting overly frustrated when things don't work. Because as you find out in science and in research, most of the ideas you have actually don't work. It's the few nuggets that that do that end up making your career, but you have to get past those failures to, to get to the successes. Yeah. So what other interests do you have? And tell me a bit more about sort of the, the ethos and dynamic of your family, clearly two very educated parents, I would imagine. There was a strong emphasis towards working hard in school and getting a good education. It was, yeah. So so schoolwork and, and doing well in school wasn't really optional in the family. You know, <laughs> you, 
you had to do your work and also you had to be the best in your class. And so that was a big factor, you know, growing up. Fortunately for me, I really liked school. I was one of those kids who everybody was annoyed with because if the teacher forgot to assign homework, I would remind the teacher, you know, <laughs> you forgot to give us homework. So I, I wasn't the most popular kid uh, no. growing up. I, mean, I, I also, so in fourth grade, I had a teacher, Mrs. Kemp, and she saw that I was doing well in school. And so she suggested that I uh, skip from the fourth grade to the sixth grade, which was great for me intellectually to be challenged. The, the downside was I was really small. And so I was this sort of small, scrawny kid who really liked homework. And so that sort of junior high period was pretty rough in terms of, you know, getting picked on and stuff like that. But, you know, again, having, you know, close-knit family, I think for me, helped a lot. We were, again, a Nigerian family in Toledo, Ohio, and, and the school I went to was predominantly white. So that was also a challenging dynamic, you know, being one of uh, a few Black students there. Unfortunately, that's, of course, persisted. I mean, even today in 2023, I'm the only Black engineering professor here at Caltech. And so maybe that early experience helped me to be more used to dynamic, but We'll probably come back to this later. It's a dynamic I hope we can we can change. Yeah. So I'm curious about something. The differences perhaps between how your parents looked at and experienced their identity and race, born and raised right. in Nigeria, and then coming to the States where there's very different dynamic and, and tapestry to it. Did you ever talk together about that or get some insights from them about how to navigate? We did. I mean, the irony... I would say an unfortunate irony is that in Toledo, for example, there is a, a really strong African-American community there. But my parents, because they were from, from Nigeria, didn't identify as strongly with that community. And so from their perspective, they kind of, I think, felt like outsiders from the white community, but also outsiders from the African-American community in that space. Now, for me as a, a young Black kid growing up in, in Toledo, Externally, no one could tell, you know, that my parents were from Nigeria. I was just, you know, another black kid there. So unfortunately, some of the, the discrimination that you would you would face as a as a black kid growing up there, it was equal opportunity. It didn't matter whether your family had been in Ohio for for generations or like my family had only been there for a decade. And so for me growing up, you kind of had a hard time finding your place. You know, for some of the the white kids, it was sort of apparent that I was not you know, fitting in. And for some of the black kids, I also wasn't fitting in because my parents were were Nigerian. And, and so eventually I think I learned how to ingratiate myself with both with both groups. So I had some good friends across the spectrum. But it was a complex dynamic and one that honestly I don't know that I really was that introspective about until, you know, you go to college and then you see all sorts of different cultures, you know, and in Toledo it was sort of black or white that it weren't we didn't have a big Asian population or Latin American population. Yeah. And was your family the only or one of very, very few recent immigrants and the rest were, as you said, multi-generation or longer time African American? In our part of Toledo, in South Toledo, that was the case. Now if you go across the border to Michigan, there were some healthy Nigerian populations. There are other African populations, but we didn't get a chance to interact with them as commonly. The, the other dynamic was that my parents were very strong Christians, you know, people of faith. And, and that's something that I've, that I've taken up, you know, personally for myself. In practice, that meant is, for example, we went to a small Baptist school for high school. And so even if there would have been a greater ethnic diversity, racial diversity in Toledo more broadly, 
at Emmanuel Baptist High School, where I went to school, there really wasn't. Yeah, yeah. You know, my family, my grandfather and grandmother came over from Ireland, so I'm a generation uh-huh. further down than you. But that generation really wanted to leave behind any sense of the Irishness and just become American, fit in, give their kids a launch pad into the United States. So they never really carried on any of the old country Irish traditions. Oh, that's too bad. Yeah, in retrospect, I can, I can appreciate why they would have made that decision at the time. But I'm curious if you at home can carry forward any of the Nigerian traditions that your parents had grown up with. Yeah, so, so they were, were very proud of, of their Nigerian heritage. And so at formal events, for example, they would wear the traditional Nigerian outfits, you know, at our graduation or, or other events at school. Of course, as a kid and growing up, I hated that. Yeah. <laughs> I wanted my dad to just wear a suit like everybody else's dad was fit wearing. Fit in, dad, please, just fit exactly. in. <laughs> and, uh, you know, my, my middle name is Olusheun, which is uh, Yoruba, Nigerian. And so... Oftentimes, people would ask me what the O stands for, John O. o DeBerry, and I would make up something, you know, Otis or, or something. Just <laughs> I figured, like, we don't need to have that conversation. Now, later, you know, I, I actually became really proud of it. And so now, typically, as you know, when I will publish anything, I'll always make sure the O is is in there. So it's not just not just John DeBerry. But as a kid growing up, you just you want to fit in as, as best as you can. And so anything that makes you different. That's something you're trying to avoid. It's a little scary, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And you're already the kid that asked for homework, so you've already been marked out as a... <laughs> <laughs> exactly, yeah. So there was a time, you know, my parents tried, you know, in terms of trying to fit in, you know, my mom would always emphasize to me, you know, the most important thing is you're going to be discriminated against, and so you need to be twice as good to get half as much as the next person. And, and that kind of stuck with me and, and motivated me to want to be really good in school and to have the eye toward the fact that yeah, junior high kind of sucked, but maybe things would get better, you know, once I got out of Toledo and was able to, to do something else. And, I, I and think that, junior high sucks to a fair degree for everybody, but you got extra doses. It, it does, yeah. <laughs> you know, now I, I have kids of my own and, you know, they're, they're starting into junior high and I'm sort of bracing them. Now, it turns out they have a lot more friends than I ever did. And so I'm not actually sure how to <laughs> relate to the fact that they don't have, you know, I had my one sort of lunchtime friend growing up and they have, you know, all sorts of social networks. So yeah. I'm happy for them. A little jealous. <laughs> <laughs> Were you athletic at all in school? I was, yeah. So that was one of the saving graces, I think, outside of, of academics was being able to play sports. Always been sort of inherently competitive, partly because I have an older brother who's just a couple of years older than me. And so we had a little basketball hoop in our backyard and we always played against each other. I think the the fact that I had skipped a grade meant I was smaller than some of the other pe- people. And so that kind of was intimidating for me, you know, getting into basketball but I love to play, loved watching sports. I was big, you know, in Toledo because we're so close to the Michigan border. The Detroit Pistons were a big team that everybody followed. Also, because at that time, this is the, the Cleveland Cavaliers before LeBron James were terrible. So yeah. <laughs> that wasn't really a, a team people would think about. But me, my, my brother, my dad, sometimes my sister would, you know, watch basketball games all the time, watching the Pistons in particular. So that was fun. So when you hit high school, what kind of idea do you have in mind for the road ahead of you? Is is it a family presumption that college is is the next step and you're going to do it? Or were you already thinking towards what your career arc wanted to be? Yeah, so definitely college. That was, you know, again, just like the requirement of being the top person in your class, there was definitely the requirement to, to go to college. I, at the time, was really interested in, you know, auto mechanic, you know, mechanical engineering, the automotive industry, largely just because of where we 
we were there in Ohio. But there was this TV show called Head of the Class. It had these sort of nerd, a couple of nerdy kids in the, in the class, one that went to MIT and one that went to Caltech. I never actually heard of Caltech outside of that TV show, but MIT was much more, I think, in the popular understanding of what a a really cool sort of tech school would be. So I, for a long time, was dead set on going to MIT. They have a program or had a program back then when I was in high school, a summer program for minority students called MITES. And so I applied to that program and I didn't get in and I was devastated. You know, I thought that was like the path for me. And so at that point, MIT was kind of dead to me. <laughs> <laughs> one and um, done, man, one and done. <laughs> exactly. And so after that, you know, I started looking more. I had a vision for going somewhere outside of Toledo. And so started thinking about, you know, all these schools, Harvard, Princeton, Yale, that, that you know, you hear about. My older brother went to Penn, University of Pennsylvania. And so on, I think we might have been driving out there to visit him, like for his college visits, or maybe to actually visit him. But we stopped by Princeton just long enough to go to the admissions office, get their little booklet for Princeton. And then at some point, yeah, I just kind of fell in love with that, the idea of going to, to Princeton. So I only applied to two colleges. I applied to the University of Toledo and to Princeton. Wow. And so I figured if if I can get in there, great. If not, then I'll I'll you know, go to UT and, and have a, you know, have a... Yeah, it doesn't have as much of a marquee name, but it's got right. you perfectly fine programs. Exactly, exactly. It, you know, it would have meant probably living at home and, you know, there was that, that desire to kind of do something different. So so the idea of moving, you know, outside of Toledo was, was really exciting to me at that point. So fortunately, that worked out being able to get into Princeton and, and then pursue engineering. So you were clear when you hit first day freshman year, engineering's the path and mechanical, specifically mechanical engineering? Yeah, you know, I had kind of tunnel vision. Now, some of that is, I didn't, you know, Princeton probably had, you know, 100 different majors. I really didn't know that some of those majors existed, you know, classics, et cetera. You know, growing up in my high school, we had, you know, you had 10th grade math, you had 10th grade history, you had 10th grade English, 10th grade Bible there, there were no AP classes or anything like that, no outside enrichment. So I just really didn't know that all that stuff existed. And I knew, you know, I was good at math and good at physics. And so mechanical engineering seemed like a perfectly yeah. good route. So what was it like arriving at Princeton as a freshman? Did you get a buddy or a freshman advisor or anything to help you figure out, figure out how to learn the ropes? Yeah, it was intimidating. So, you know, you get there and, you know, I didn't really appreciate that we were economically in a lower class, really, until you get to a place like Princeton. So, you know, I came there, didn't have a lot of clothes. <laughs> so soon realized that I should probably, you know, get some additional clothes. So I wasn't wearing like the two outfits <laughs> rotation all the time. But, you know, Mayor Bloomberg's daughter was in my class there. So, you know, you've got these people who are who just have had a very different life experience than I did. And so that sort of culture shock was probably one of the biggest adjustments I worked in the dining hall because I was on financial aid there. And so, you know, you're serving the mashed potatoes to your classmates. And that's a, it's sort of an awkward dynamic initially. You know, most, to be fair, 95% that my other classmates were awesome. And, you know, they wouldn't look down on you for being in that role. But it only takes one or two interactions to make you feel like you, you're kind of out of place hmm. in that context. And so, so I didn't last very long in the dining hall. Fortunately, later on, I was able to get the financial aid satisfied through tutoring or other activities that, that weren't 
quite like that. But it was it was a big culture shock. The other thing, of course, is that my graduating class in high school was 29 of us. And then I went to Princeton where the the freshman class was, what, 1100, something like that. So just the, the sheer size of the place, the fact that I went to a school where that was really strict Baptist school, you know, we didn't even have a high school dance because dancing was considered, you know, inappropriate. And then you go to, you know, I'd never drank or smoked or done anything at all. And so you go to college and, and so that was an adjustment for sure. <laughs> yeah, I think so. Yeah. <laughs> So you were mechanical engineering and aero, and the arc of your career that I just find really fascinating is undergraduate degree in mechanical engineering with a minor in aero. And by the time you're doing your doctoral work, it's bioengineering with a minor in aero. Right. How does that happen? What what made that transition? Right. Probably goes back to high school and, you know, I don't want to disparage teachers because teachers have a really hard job. <laughs> but I had a, a biology teacher in high school that left me just feeling like biology was just, you know, stamp collecting, memorizing the genus, species, whatever. I didn't really understand the point of doing it. And on top of that, this was at a Baptist school where the underlying belief was that evolution wasn't correct. And so the way that we learned to undermine of the ideas of evolution was really they taught us a, a Lamarckian version. What, what that is, is the idea that giraffes got a long neck by, you know, reaching up for the trees and eventually their necks stretch longer. And then somehow those acquired characteristics get inherited by other generations. And so, of course, any anybody who who knows how evolution works would know that that is that's been discounted as as an approach to evolution for 150 years. But that's the version we taught so that it was easy to point to it and say, oh, okay, evolution obviously is not correct. And so both because of my sort of religiously indoctrinated aversion to biology, to evolution, and because I had this biology class in high school that was just not very stimulating, I didn't want anything to do with biology when I got to college. So you could have, for example, taken biology as an elective, and I, I took zero biology when I was in college. So it was only really until my my graduate advisor here at Caltech, who was also my a summer research advisor for me, that he tricked me into getting back into biology. <laughs> because I applied for a summer program here in the aerospace department at Caltech. This is when I was finishing my junior year at Princeton. And so he said, yeah, you know, you can come out. And I told him I was really interested in, in rockets and propulsion. How undergrad I'd been doing work on what are now called these little drones, the, the quadcopters, but back then just miniature helicopters. And I figured I'm going to Caltech, you know, they've got JPL, they've got an aerospace department. This is going to be an easy fit. And on one of our first days, he says, okay, we're going to go to the aquarium. And, you know, I want you to analyze one of the organisms over here from this perspective of how we think of propulsion in mechanical systems. And so I was immediately pretty disappointed <laughs> this was I kind of a, a bait and switch. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> exactly. And, you know, at that time, it was a really big struggle to decide whether to come and do the internship at all, because I had an offer from Ford that summer to do a, a research internship. And they were paying something like, I think it was $4,800 for the summer, which was, you know, for, for a kid growing up from Toledo, that's like a million dollars. And and the the summer program at that time Caltech was not paying as much. It was it wasn't horrible, but it was, you know, maybe, I don't know, three quarters of that. 
And so at the time I thought, well, okay, I'm giving that up to come to this program here. I was also, this is sort of an aside, but I had never flown on an airplane before. So I was really terrified of going to Caltech just because it meant I would have to take an airplane to go there. And so, because all of the previous trips, when, when we, when I got dropped off as a freshman at college, we all hopped in the car and my dad drove us from Toledo to, to Princeton. And then after that, just because, you know, traveling is expensive when you don't have money, I would take the Greyhound bus. And that's a very long and harrowing trip. <laughs> but, <laughs> you know, you can get from Toledo to Princeton back then for, you know, I think 40 bucks or something pretty cheap. And then after that, you know, we decided because some of those trips, we had some sketchy incidents, we would at least take the train. So Amtrak will take you a little bit more expensive. But Planes were just not something that I wanted to think about. It's sort of ironic. Obviously, I'm in, in an aerospace program. Yeah, I was going to say, <laughs> you got over that. <laughs> yeah, I, did, I didn't quite trust it, though. And so, but that was my first time on a, on a, on a plane going to, to visit uh, Caltech. And it was multiple stop. It was on Southwest. And so I think we went from oh, gosh. Detroit, St. Louis, to Phoenix, and then to L.A., and uh, so that's one way to get over your fear of flying is just have to keep <laughs> taking off and landing over and over again. But when I got to Caltech and, and did that program with my advisor working on jellyfish, that was the, the system I ended up picking. I just kind of fell in love with the idea of taking that mindset of that I used to you know take apart my video games when I was a kid or that car that we couldn't get put back together. But now to think about using those same ideas to understand how biological systems work, how this very simple sort of bag of, of water in a jellyfish can swim through the ocean. So, so, that so was how, did, how did you pick jellyfish? I mean, you just go to the aquarium and scan all the tanks and spot something intriguing? Yeah, I wasn't all that clever. It was, I figured this is a 10-week program. Those look really simple. <laughs> Let me pick easy one so that I know I can get something by the end of the 10 weeks. And here we are 20, 23 years later, <laughs> and we're still working on it, yeah. <laughs> so that's where the glimmer of bioengineering came. It sort of caught the bug, right, that same 10-week program? I did, yeah. And so I, I knew that I wanted to come back to Caltech and to work with the same professor. You know, something that, that comes up a lot, you know, in academic research, people thinking about getting their PhD the person you work with, who's your, your PhD advisor, we call them, really the mentor who helps you pick a project and guide you through the PhD, that's really the most important person in your life for that period of five or so years. And I just felt like I, I hit the jackpot in, in meeting this person who I just felt really got me and was able to find interesting problems for me to work on. Interesting side story there is he thought I was Persian. So he's he's Persian. He's from Iran. And my last name is actually, Tabiri actually is a name that you'll sometimes see people from Persian descent have. And in fact, he had at the time a, a research staff member in his group with my same last name, Tabiri. So when I emailed him, you know, the way you typically would get a summer internship is you email professors a few places and mostly they don't respond because professors are busy. But as an undergrad, you don't know that. So I emailed professor, I think, at Georgia Tech and MIT and Caltech. And Maury Grieb, the, my PhD advisor, was the only one who wrote back. And he was very positive. Say, yeah, yeah, yes, come on out. And I remember the first time we had a meeting, I went up to his office and his assistants in the, the sort of small office ahead of his. She says, yeah, go on in. And I peek my head in and he says, you're Dabiri? Because <laughs> <laughs> I think he was expecting to see someone of so Persian. Persian. That. I'm like, yeah, that's me. And so <laughs> we have a laugh about that every now and again. But it turned out to be some kind of a fate because he turned out to be one of the most important mentors in my, my whole career. 
Wow. So you finished at Princeton. Senior thesis at Princeton is the norm? Yeah, that's right. So I did my senior thesis still on the helicopter, miniature helicopter work. So again, I, I really didn't have the background to be able to say anything useful about a biological system until I got to Caltech, where they were starting a new program in this area, bioengineering. So back then, this is, you know, circa 2000, there weren't a lot of bioengineering programs. A few biomedicine programs were coming around, but the idea that people, engineers would study biological systems that weren't the human body, you know, not for, for the purposes of human health, was still pretty early stages. The idea at that time was that this concept that's sometimes called biomimicry or bio-inspired engineering, that maybe we can learn design principles from nature to build better engineered systems. People will sometimes point to Velcro, which uh, it's I'm not sure if it's apocryphal or not, but the idea is that someone was hiking and got those burrs stuck on their clothes, and that inspired the idea for Vel Velcro. Or there are other examples, these pitcher plants that they the water will beat up very well on the leaf surfaces. And so that could be a technology used for water repellent chemicals, that, that kind, of, kind of idea. Now, the problem with that approach, or what potentially is a problem, is you could go out and try to just build mechanical versions of nature. And what you get then are the early attempts at power to flight. The way people thought you could fly was, let me just build something that flaps like a bird, because that's the one example I know that's successful. And of course, it wasn't until we said, okay, let's stick an engine on this thing and just have fixed wings that you really had success in, in, in powered flight. So you want to study the biological systems to get the physical principles, not necessarily just to copy them exactly. And that's what this, this field of bioengineering was starting to do is figure out how to formalize that as, a, as, a, as an area yeah. of study. So what does that look like in coursework? Or did you have any coursework for your master's and PhD? Yeah. So Caltech is great because sometimes they'll just make stuff up. So they said, <laughs> we're going to... We're going to create this bioengineering program. And, you know, some of the faculty from biology and from engineering got together and said, OK, let's uh, you know, we want them to be good in math. So here you'll take some math classes. You'll take the fluid dynamics that you would take as an engineer. But we also want you to take biochemistry and we want you to take physiology and just kind of threw it at this first cohort of us students there. And I think a lot of us sort of drowned in that in the sense that, you know, the, the physics and the math were fine. But the biochemistry, I had no idea what was going on there. So I fortunately, one of the other students who was in my cohort, he was a pre-med. And so he could, you know, kind of help me learn enough of the arrow pushing and, and stuff like that. I, to this day, I, just, I tell students if they ever have questions on the chemistry side, I can refer you to one of my colleagues. Yeah, go, go find <laughs> someone else. <laughs> exactly. You know, I, I know my limitations there. And then. I also had a class in evolution. And so it was kind of oh, an that interesting... that must have been a revolution. Yeah, exactly. Well, so the interesting thing at the time... So again, I, I've grown up in Toledo, Ohio, in this Baptist school where all we've been told is that this evolution thing is a farce. And the examples we had been given were, you know, Lamarckian version, the sort of straw man, incorrect version of evolution that's easy to pick at. So anyways, I so that means I start this class already from the mindset of, I don't know, this whole evolution stuff sounds kind of like BS to me. Ironically, it, I don't want to ruin the story, but the person teaching me this class was a, a professor here named Francis Arnold, who had been working on this idea of directed evolution, where you would develop, you know, new process, chemical processes by evolving systems over time. So I thought, yeah, I don't know, this seems kind of hokey. So I basically just didn't go to class. I figured, you know, 
by the end, I'm smart enough that I can pass the final by just, you know, cramming the night before. And of course, I bombed the final. And so I thought, well, yeah, well, but really good student here. I was getting A's in all my other classes. I'm sure she'll she'll give me a pass. And I remember going to her office and she says, John, you failed. And I was like, I mean, I know I didn't do well. She says, no, you failed the class. I can't help you. And so I just sort of stood there sort of shocked a little bit. And so <laughs> left her office, went back to talk to my advisor and say, I have some bad news. I failed the class. <laughs> and so I, I ended up having to take her, her class again and the next year. And, and that time I, I did much, much better in the course. But fast forward, of course, another, what what was it, 15 years, and Francis won the Nobel Prize in chemistry for those ideas that so she The was wacko ideas. That, yeah. Exactly. So, <laughs> so I should have paid more attention that first time. <laughs> Unfortunately, now, as, as you, you know, Francis has, has become a great friend and mentor to me and supporter. Uh, she's one of our co-chairs on, on PCAS, where we've been doing the wildfire work. So, so that was a very interesting and unexpected arc from my graduate school days to, to where we are here. Yeah, I didn't I didn't know that whole backstory. It was clear when we first came together as that group of advisors that you guys had a history and knew each other well, but I had no idea that was that funny. <laughs> yeah, you know, in, in my whole career, I, I, I've never gotten a B. I've gotten all A's and one F. And she was... <laughs> Not many people can say that. Right. <laughs> So by a master's level and a PhD level, you know, with some help from your mentor, you're picking your project to work on. And did you stick with jellyfish? And I know you've taken your jellyfish insights into some very interesting domains. You're the only person I can imagine who would connect jellyfish to submarines and wind farms. Right. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. So I think what happened in my graduate program was I, I got the exposure to a bunch of different problems that all had this underlying theme of, of what we call fluid dynamics. So the motion of air, water, and blood, we think of all of those, whether they're liquids or gases, as fluids. So in fluid dynamics, we're interested in how that motion connects to the forces that the system creates. So how much force does the heart create need to create to pump the blood in your body? How much force does a propeller need to, to create to generate a thrust to push a submarine through the water? And what kind of turbulence and stuff does it leave behind, right? Because exactly. you know, ships, for example, have very turbulent, aerated wakes from churning up the water. Exactly. And those, those signatures can actually tell you a lot about what was there. So in the case of that submarine, if I don't want to be detected, that's one of the first things I have to worry about is what that wake looks like. In the, in the case of these biological systems, the, the neat thing is that you can use that same wake to tell you something about the species. So in the case of jellyfish, you have some that swim really efficiently, meaning they don't use a lot of energy to move through the water, but they might not be swimming as, as fast as other ones. Now, there are other species that when they do swim, they swim really fast, but only because they're trying to escape a predator or to catch prey. And so there, you might not care about how efficient you are. You just want to survive. Yeah, eat or be eaten. Exactly. And so those two types of, of propulsion, efficient versus you could think of it as, as high force, they have different types of wakes associated, different types of flows associated with them. And so our early work was trying to understand how we could predict the propulsive mode, the swimming mode of the organism, its efficiency or its crisis mode, that escape mode, by looking at the flow. At the same time, in the same you know research group with my PhD advisor, there were people looking at blood flow. And in the left atrium of your heart, that's where the oxygenated blood comes and then is passed to the rest of the body. The flow passes through a valve there and creates these swirling currents that when you look at them are actually pretty 
similar to the, the wakes of these jellyfish. So in both cases, you get these donut-shaped swirling currents. We sometimes call them vortex rings, but it's like the smoke ring some people can, you know, blow with a cigar or something like that. Or a scuba diver that can do bubble rings. Exactly. Yeah. You'll see dolphins playing with them sometimes yeah. as well. So so that kind of structure turns out to be common in a lot of different systems, in jellyfish, in the human heart, in just turbulence in general, when you're flying in an aircraft and very complex flow that's passing over the wing. You'll have these vortex wings and loops associated with those flows. So a lot of my PhD was really fundamentally about vortex rings, how they grow, what their shape and size tells you about the system that created them. And so from there, it wasn't, in my mind, a huge conceptual leap to say, let's take some of the interesting things we've been seeing about vortex rings and jellyfish. The fact that I can use the flow behind one of them to tell whether it's pumping efficiently and apply that same type of concept in a place like the human heart. So you can look in the heart and now on the basis of the blood flow, be able to infer characteristics of the heart health. And the, the potential benefit here is that those changes in the flow in some cases occur before other obvious markers of dysfunction, like the person not feeling their best or structural changes in the heart that can occur when you get an enlarged heart. Can you see those rings non-invasively in the human heart? Exactly. And that's the key. So you can potentially use things like ultrasound, you know, as you would use for to to look in utero at a baby or MRI is another technique. We and other groups, many other groups have taken this and run further with it than we did, are looking at the lowest cost diagnostics that you could use to detect this. So even just using the sound that the blood is making within the heart to infer this. But in each case, it's this idea that the fluid dynamics of the blood can tell us something about the heart health in the same way that the water flows in the jellyfish were telling us about their performance. And that sort of ended up being the connection between those two spaces. Okay, so I follow that. Then how did schooling fish get into the mix? That was a segue really motivated by this movie that came out, I think, around 2005, An Inconvenient Truth that talked about the climate crisis. So up until that point in my own research, I, I had the benefit of being at a place like Caltech, which is kind of magical because you can work on anything that you're curious about. And I've just always been curious about, you know, what is it about these jellyfish that makes them, them so efficient? Along the way, we've had some serendipitous connections with things like cardiac health, heart health based on blood flow. But I hadn't had sort of an intentional vision for how the work that we do in my lab could affect something that my parents are caring about, like the climate crisis, et cetera. And so I sort of intentionally tried to think about a way in which my skill set could be useful. Now, as we we explored earlier, I suck at chemistry. So, you know. <laughs> that rules out that whole field. <laughs> right, exactly. You know, new batteries or new solar panels, I probably wouldn't be able to do a lot. And wind energy is a space in which fluid dynamics is, is really important. It's everything, yeah. And in particular, one of the things I was pretty keen on was figuring out ways that we could generate energy closer to cities. So there's an ongoing trend of people moving into cities, especially in emerging economies around the world. And it's difficult in those cases to use wind energy if the devices are, you know, hundreds of miles away from the end user. And then yet if you go, you know, you walk through a city like Chicago or other places there's certainly places where you have these really intense winds. And so we started thinking about ways in which you might develop technologies to capture wind there. One of the challenges you have is you have to figure out how to develop a mathematical theory to calculate 
what a wind turbine is going to do in those environments. Because now it's not just the wind turbine out in an open field, but there's a building there. That building can accelerate the flow or block the flow. And so I started writing down in fluid dynamics are some simple equations that would kind of represent the effect of the neighboring building on the wind turbines. And sort of by coincidence, the types of equations you end up writing were very similar to ones that I was teaching in a class I teach here at Caltech on swimming and flying, the mechanics of swimming and flying. So um, if I wanted to describe what happens when a, a school of fish are swimming through the ocean, then I'll write down a set of equations for the, the flow that each of the individual fish create. And then I have to figure out how to sort of add up their effects. And you get these interesting results that the whole in some ways is greater than the sum of its parts, meaning a fish within the group can swim more efficiently than it does by its in the group than it would by itself because it can leverage the interactions with the other fish. And it's it's not unlike the Tour de France where you'll see the cyclists right. swim, drafting uh, cy- on each other. Drafting with the- with each other. Exactly. Does that principle also have a role in how starlings flock and fly? It does. Yeah. And so the challenging thing with something like a starling is there are also potential behavioral benefits. So like seeing my neighbor, for example, could modify how exactly how that organization occurs. But there's certainly an aerodynamic component to it as Hmm. well. But, But your question is actually spot on because the challenge you always have in understanding biological systems is that they're not necessarily optimizing for the things we think about as engineers. So the starling formation that maximizes, say, their lift or minimizes their drag might not be exactly what we see because the starlings also have to worry about that visual perception. And the falcon that's trying to take them out of the sky. So yeah, they're, exactly. they're, that's a defensive maneuver in part. Exactly. So so in this field of bioengineering, what we would do is say, okay, let's first just understand from the physics side, we'll strip away the behavioral considerations, the predator-prey interaction, and just say, can we write down equations for what the aerodynamics look like? An offshoot or a benefit of that is now I can say, okay, let's say I wanted to build use your Starling example, a fleet of aircraft that we're going to fly most efficiently, I can optimize my equations, but with a different objective than what the Starlings had. Okay. So yeah. same thing with, with the school of fish. We took those equations for the school of fish and you might think, well, maybe they're minimizing the drag that they are experiences as, as they move through the water, but we can use those same equations. And if I imagine now that I'm representing instead of fish, a bunch of wind turbines, I can say, what if I wanted to maximize the amount of energy that that group is going to collect? So you end up getting configurations for those wind turbines that are quantitatively different from the fish, meaning so the actual spacing of the fish might be different from the wind turbines, but that qualitatively, just by appearance, they have a lot of similarities, diamond patterns and you know hexagonal arrangements, et cetera. And so we tasked a couple of grad students in my lab to calculate what sort of improvement could you get if you use this approach, because the turbines now can be placed much closer together. So would these be the same big propeller blade type, type turbines that we see in current wind fields, or would they be a different... Well, they also have to have a different form factor? Yeah, so we looked at a different form factor initially sort of as a consequence of the math. The way that a conventional propeller-shaped wind turbine creates a wake, you get the flow behind it is almost this corkscrew of air, which is just more complicated for a first stab. And so by contrast, we were looking at what are called vertical axis wind turbines. They're called that because the blades, they rotate around a vertical axis sticking out of the ground, like a merry-go-round or or something like that, as opposed to the conventional propeller-style turbines we call 
horizontal axis wind turbines because the blades rotate around a horizontal axis. So these vertical axis wind turbines, the mathematical representation for those is, is basically identical to how we would represent the, the effect of the fish in the water. So really as a point of convenience, that worked out well. But it also turns out that those vertical axis turbines could have some other benefits in terms of fewer bird and bat impacts because of the different visual signature they have. More of the mass is lowered to the ground. So if you want to do offshore floating wind turbines, these vertical axis wind turbines could be a simpler solution. So, yeah. there's, so there's other benefits there. They're quieter too, aren't they? And quieter. Yeah. Some of that has to do with again, the, the lower rotation speed. speed. Yeah. Exactly. And so it has a lot of potential benefits. On top of that, we found that if you were to use this fish school inspired arrangement that on paper, you could get 10 times more energy out of a plot of land than the existing systems because you can put them closer together and because of the fact that they can be tall and slender. So they can interact with the wind over a larger dimension than the footprint that they have, you know, looking from a bird's eye view. So I remember the students first coming back with their first calculations of this sort of 10x increase. And I thought, well, that, that you guys made a mistake. It can't be right. Correct. <laughs> but it, it turns out the on-paper calculation was 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 perfectly correct. At the same time, in engineering, we still know that if you have a claim of that magnitude, you're going to need some data to back it up. People aren't going to just take your the paper answer. Right. So this was around 2008, 2009 market crash. And it turned out that land around here in Southern California got really cheap. So I went on Zillow or one of the those, those websites and found a plot of land about an hour north of Caltech that was really windy and really cheap. We got a couple of acres for, I think, $10,000. And so, yeah. And and again, one, one of the great things about being at Caltech is, you know, I talked to the, the dean here, the, the division chairs, we called him and said, yeah, I'd like to buy a plot of land. And he said, what for? And I said, well, we want to build a wind farm. And he said, okay. <laughs> he said, you know, contact this person in property services. That's you my know. kind of bureaucracy. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> And so it was up and running in, in a few months after that. We worked with one of, there was a startup company building these vertical axis wind turbines and made a deal with them that they would give us the turbines in exchange for the data on their performance, because most of these startups can't afford to, to do that kind of testing. And so over the next few years, we, we were able to build up this body of data that corroborated those initial estimates that you can get significantly more energy. Now, we're not yet at the happily ever after because the mechanical design of these systems, again, like I said, you know, startup companies just kind of getting going, the mechanical reliability has been a really big issue. It, you know, the, the turbines you'll see out deployed today have been refined over the past, you know, 40, 45 years incrementally. And it's going to take, hopefully not that long, but it's going to take some more time, I think, to get to the place where you have economical and robust vertical axis turbines. But we're excited that these concepts, again, inspired by what we see in nature, have panned out as another potential energy solution. Yeah. I want to shift gears and explore a couple other directions with you. Yeah. One is you have received a couple of really extraordinary, highly prestigious prizes that are, dare I say, sort of miniature versions of a Nobel laureate in terms of their significance in a career. And the one in particular I want to ask you about is a MacArthur Fellowship, which I think you got in 2010, colloquially popularly known as the Genius Award. Is that like getting the Nobel call? Is it something that comes out of the blue? Someone says, hi, by the way, what's that like? My colloquial understanding of, of the MacArthur, because we've had at Caltech other colleagues who had won it, I'd gotten a phone call from the MacArthur Foundation saying, you know, you've won. Out of money. the blue, like 
Yeah, just out of the blue. But but that didn't happen for me. So I got an email from the MacArthur Foundation saying that they wanted to get in touch with me. And so I figured, well, okay, it's it's not the call. So maybe they just want to get a hold of one of my colleagues here and you know I'd be happy to to facilitate. So I emailed them back and we set up the call. And then it was on that call. They said, oh, we had a a digit wrong, I think, in your number. (laughs) And so we weren't able to get a hold of you. And so this was their way of getting hold of you. And congratulations, you've you've won a a MacArthur Fellowship. My jaw, I was sitting in my office here and my jaw just sort of hit the ground. You know, your mind sort of goes blank after that. It was was incredible. It wasn't anything that you have on your list to do's. No, it's a huge award financially goes to accelerate, accelerating your work? Exactly. I mean, so remember, uh, I was the person who was, you know, really sad about turning down that $4,800 summer. <laughs> and this was $500,000 that they were, that was no strings attached. And I, I remember wondering whether that really was no strings attached, but like, yeah, you can use it for whatever you want to. And so, uh, and that, that turned out to be true. Although, so at the time we had, we had just had our our first daughter. And so a lot of that money went to diapers and things of that sort. But they said, you know, anything that'll help you in your work. And I felt like, you okay, if I can pay for that. For if I can take good care of my family and their set. That, exactly. Yeah, no, yeah absolutely. that fits in. You know, the other thing I was supposed to spend the money on was swimming lessons because I've never learned how to swim. I was going to ask you about that. Dr. Jellyfish can't swim. Is that true? Yes. Yeah. You know, and part of it is, you know, the few times that I had been to a pool when I was young. So in Toledo, you know, they have community pools. And when I was probably around fourth grade, I got a little bit too deep in the water and slipped. And and so I was, honestly, I was probably in like four feet of water, but to me, it was like the bottom <laughs> of the ocean. And someone had to like come save me up. And I was so terrified after that, that I didn't really even try. In fact, one of the things I was nervous about going to college is that some colleges still had swimming requirements. Fortunately, Princeton got rid of theirs before I got there. But occasionally I've tried, I actually did use some of the MacArthur money to take private lessons. It's just, I've taken lessons at the Y when I was up at Stanford, they had a class called Overcoming Your Fear of the Water. And I joke that it worked in, in that I'm I'm now capable of calmly drowning, but I, <laughs> I definitely still cannot swim. I, I love it. Next funky question, totally tangential. Yeah. Yeah, the TV show Big Bang is a set of you know nerdy geeky guys at a college campus called Cal Sci, which everybody right. everybody who knows anything knows it's a cheap takeoff on Caltech. Right, a big miss on Caltech's part to just let him use the name. I yeah, mean, <laughs> they sort of have it about right. <laughs> you know, in some ways they do. I think one of the, the things I really love about Caltech is you have people who really their whole life revolves around aspects of science and engineering that, you know, might otherwise seem esoteric. But, you know, for them, it's the thing that really gets them up in the morning and gets them excited. And in some cases, it's a topic that we know is going to have some big impact in the world. But in other cases, we have no idea, you know, whether or not it will. And and so there's something to me romantic about the idea. You know, we're fortunate to be at a place like Caltech where you can pursue a problem like that, where you don't yet know whether it's going to have impact. But in terms of, you know, the quirkiness and the social socially awkward, you know, nature of students and faculty alike, <laughs> I think probably a fair assessment. And, you know, I, I have the contrast with being at Princeton or at Stanford where, you know, you can go to the business school at Stanford and everybody looks like they came out of a catalog, <laughs> you know, versus, you know, our engineering school here. And, you know, both salt of the earth people you can find in both places, obviously, but definitely a difference in personality. Yeah. 
two more questions. You you worked with Jordan Peele on his movie Nope, which is yeah. sort of kind of a UFO flick as it starts out, but then becomes something rather different. Uh, fascinated. He had the idea of this quote-unquote UFO actually being an organism, a jellyfish, or did that come about through your collaboration? I think it sort of evolved. So I know that they had in mind some combination of organisms, so biological organism and mechanical system, which is kind of the wheelhouse of what the things we, we think about. You know, being in Southern California, it's not unusual to get studios who will reach out and say, hey, could you provide advice on this or that thing? And and typically, it's just been that I'm having so much fun doing what I do on a day-to-day basis that I, I don't entertain a lot of those things. Random aside, but the other thing that you you often get emails for that I didn't appreciate until being in this job is to go on these game shows, you know, trivia game shows. <laughs> I always want professors to be there. And again, there I've just been too shy because I figure, you know, you can only look bad. Right? <laughs> if you do well, they're like, sure, he's a Celtic professor. Of course, he knows the answer. If you do poorly, then like, wow, he's a Celtic professor. And he doesn't know the answer. <laughs> so that, that's an aside. But in general, I just don't respond to, to those inquiries. And so the first time they got in touch, respond. But then another person I know, I think it was at Berkeley, reached out to me and said, hey, you know, there's this company, they, they, they're interested in the work you do for this movie that they're putting together. And once I found out it was Jordan Peele, then I was like, of course, sign me up. You know, I, I, I love his work. And at the time, this was a couple of years ago now, it was still in the stage of the, the initial script and, you know, thinking about how this, this, this story would evolve in terms of the different functions that this thing could carry out. So I think my, so Jordan wanted this thing to obviously be something that is sort of sci-fi in the sense of we're not maybe expecting it to happen, but it shouldn't break the laws of physics. You know what I mean? And so we were going through and thinking about, okay, if it's staying aloft in the air, what are some mechanisms that it could do? If it moves above a certain speed, we would expect it's breaking the speed of sound. So how do we incorporate that kind of a dynamic, et cetera? And so they came out, I was able to show some of the VFX, the visual effects folks in our lab, me feeding the jellyfish, they could see how the oral arms, the, these sort of long tendrils get released. Exactly. And, and so in the movie, you, you kind of get that kind of a feel as the, the structure is doing it. So it was my first foray into, you know, Hollywood. The funny thing now is I think many more people reach out to me about that than they do like my own research. So I'm like, don't you want to read my paper in the Journal of Fluid Mechanics? No, I can't understand that, but I like the movie. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. Very cool. Let's close with a serious question because I know it's a topic that is near and dear to your heart. How do we solve the diversity problem, not just in engineering, but really physics as well? What are your thoughts about solutions or keys that can make some progress? Yeah, we could we could spend the whole podcast, I, I think, on on just this topic because there are a lot of aspects to the challenge from my perspective. The university level where we are now, for example, I think one of the biggest challenges we have is students don't see a lot of role models, you know, on the faculty or in the, the academic leadership to even know that this kind of a job is possible. Someone you know? like me can do that. Exactly. You know, when I came, when I went to Princeton, I didn't know that there was such a thing as a, a research side to profess. I thought professors were just you know, older teachers, you know, <laughs> you know, they got you know paid to do lectures. I didn't realize you could do the research I'm doing and somebody pays you for it. I also didn't know you could go to grad school in engineering and that, you know, there are government fellowships to pay for that for you. It's not like med school or law school where you have to take out all these loans in some cases. And then I also just didn't see a lot of black 
faculty. So, you know, if I think about my time here at Caltech, our first Black faculty member, Steve Mayo, he's a professor in biology. He gave maybe one or two guest lectures in one of my biochemistry classes that I was taking. And he's the only Black person I've ever had as a faculty member in my whole career. And I know that I have been the only Black professor a lot of students have had here at Caltech. Same thing at Stanford. I was there for five years on the faculty. And so getting more people in those roles, I think, will be important for people to understand that not only that it's it's possible, I think people can, can, can see that they could achieve that level, but that it's a desirable job. You know, you might start to infer that, well, maybe there are no Black faculty because it sucks for Black people. You know, and, <laughs> Yeah, culturally and economically and other ways. Yeah. So what would you say to young kids, Black or white, maybe in junior high or high school, looking ahead and trying to think about whether it's science for them. I mean, they're being bombarded with a lot of talk about STEM careers, but. Right. So there's the angle that says you can look out at a variety of the challenges we face, whether it's climate change or an aging population. And in many of those cases, there are new science and technologies that are going to be needed in order to, to, to make a dent in those problems. I think that's one angle we can use, but sometimes I worry that that can be too utilitarian. And so you get to the place where as a researcher, if you feel like, oh, well, I'm not today in what I'm doing, solving the climate crisis directly, or I'm not directly solving the aging population problem, then, you know, is my work useless? You know, does it have any benefit to the world? So I hope we can find a way to capture something I think is more innate, which is just people's curiosity for the world and understanding that, in science and technology, it, it's a really unique lens, means by which which to explore that curiosity that we have for the world around us. And some of the outcomes from that will be the technologies that revolutionize, you know, the climate space or medicine or other things. But if you look at where we are today in terms of, you know, information technology, the underlying fundamental concepts a lot of times were developed by people who were just satisfying a curiosity and it was later that those the the use for those technologies came into being and so i i worry i mean like i said the applications of technology can be a a nice motivator for students but i think even a five-year-old is just innately curious and i think there's something to tap into in that space to draw students to science and technology even if there isn't an immediate application to that curiosity well, John, we're time, which I regret because you're right. We could go on at least another 35 <laughs> or 40 minutes on all sorts of other topics. So I might just get you back on the show some other time. But thanks for telling me, telling us your funky backstory from <laughs> car engines to jellyfish to submarines to wind farms. It was just a fascinating evolution and a delight to work with you as always. Well, it's it's been a pleasure. And I, I have to say for your listeners out there, they probably already know that, you know, anywhere Kathy goes, there's people who are fanboying about her, and, <laughs> you know, the, the work that she's done as an astronaut. And and at the same time, Kathy, it's been great to see how down to earth you are. I was definitely in- intimidated when we first started working together, thinking, oh, my gosh, Kathy Sullivan, you know, she's been to space and to the bottom of the ocean. And I i can't do either. I'm afraid of heights and, <laughs> <laughs> and I can't swim. That's all right. You do the math. I'll do the swimming. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, it's been a real pleasure working with you and, and hopefully we'll get to do a bunch more. I'll look forward to it. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for joining me on today's mission. For more solo shows and deep dives with incredible guests, along with all the ways to get the podcast and much more, head over to kathysullivanexplores.com.
This podcast is brought to you by the InterAstra Institute. New episodes are available on Spotify, Apple Music, and most everywhere podcasts are found. To be the first to know when the next episode drops, head over to interastra.space.